Hello and welcome to the 42 Rugby Weekly. This podcast is brought to you by Volkswagen, proud sponsors of Irish Rugby. Gavin Casey in studio and I'm joined by Murray Kinsella of the 42. How are you, Murray? I'm good. I'm kind of outraged actually, but we'll get into that. Oh, we will get into it. And we're also joined, delighted to be joined by Bernard Jackman as well. How are you, Bernard? Very good. I'm here to keep Murray calm. <laughs> Somebody's got to do it, Bernard. I'm sitting too far away. Office. The red mist this is descending office. upon the guy. Um, well, Murray, explain to us what uh, you're outraged by. Um, so overnight the report came out it was in New Zealand Herald who broke, broke the story we've known about this kind of world league for a while now World Rugby have proposed this tournament essentially a 12 team competition every year that involves the six nations plus the rugby championship teams um, and the other nations were kind of as yet undecided there was a proposal that be, there would be relegation promotion um, and involvement for the kind of tier two to give them that tag those nations um, but essentially now that picture has changed quite quickly um, they're talking about a 12 team world league involving the six nations the rugby championship teams plus USA and Japan with no relegation uh, no promotion so essentially you're locking out the Pacific Island nations from involvement and um, it will be more lucrative which is the key point here you're talking about an extra maybe six to eight million uh, euro per union per season from TV revenue, which is a big number. And I think World Rugby would probably argue that they would put that mo- some of that money back into the Pacific Island nations and developing them there. Um, but yeah, you could end up with a situation where you play the Six Nations, then you play your three tests in July where Ireland could potentially travel from Australia over to Japan maybe over to USA. We don't know what the structuring of those games will be, but it'll be a lot of travel between three tests in July. Then in November, you could have New Zealand coming up to the to the uh, Northern Hemisphere, playing three tests against three different nations, then a semi-final and a final. So you're talking about five tests in a row, which is just ludicrous, really. It's it's impossible, I guess, at the, at the highest level. And you've seen the players respond to their credit really strongly this this morning with a, a statement from international rugby players, Johnny Sexton, Owen Farrell and Kieran Reid all on the record. Um, so yeah, it's a really concerning time and um, I'm just kind of embarrassed really that rugby is kind of locking out the Pacific Island nations. Absolutely. So nine of the uh, 10 captains from uh, the top 10 international teams in the world were part of a conference call on Tuesday night. Um kind of in representation of the International Rugby Players Council, which consists of uh, almost 40 players. You mentioned there that uh, Johnny Sexton, Owen Farrell and a few people like that spoke out uh, about it. So just to give you a flavour of what they were saying, uh, Johnny Sexton, who's the president of the IRPC, said, while players gave this idea a cautious welcome when we met at the end of last year, it now seems like a commercial deal on the future of the game is being negotiated at a rapid pace with little consideration given to the important points we raised with World Rugby in November. The issue of player load has never been so topical. However, it needs to be properly understood. To suggest that players can uh, play five incredibly high-level test matches in consecutive weeks in November is out of touch and shows little understanding of the physical strain this brings. Kieran Reid uh, added, After listening to the issues raised by many of the players, we need to be very careful that we balance the commercial needs of the game with the player welfare needs and ensure the quality and integrity of matches meets expectations. Fans want to see meaningful games. They don't want to see fatigued players playing at a reduced quality of rugby as part of a money-driven, weakened competition that doesn't work for the players or clubs. And Reid added, With new technologies, new broadcast deals and new money coming into the sport, this is a crucial moment for rugby and one that many players are generally excited about. However, we need to make sure that the integrity of the game and the welfare of players is protected. And finally then, Owen Farrell um, also spoke in this statement that was released. Uh, He said, players are definitely open to discussing a new global season, but what we develop has to work with the club game in order to reduce conflict, deal with player release issues and make sure their welfare is looked after. The proposal presented to us at the moment doesn't seem to have considered this properly and shows no signs of improving this already difficult situation. So look, these are damning indictments on the proposal from some of the biggest names in the global sport. Um, how does World Rugby actually deal with this now when you have such, uh, I suppose, protagonists within the sport speaking out against their proposal? Uh, this is interesting that the that the players' union felt that they had to come out so strongly. This should have been all dealt with in-house. Um, 
you know, it's not good to have conflict between the, the world governing body and, you know, the International Repairs uh, Association. Um, but if that's what's needed to um, to protect the game, well, then it needs to happen. I mean, I think, um, you know, World Rugby, they do invest a lot of money in Tier 2, Tier 3 countries. Um, but we've always been told that that's what the World Cup um, selection, or selection is, is about. You know, France pretty much got the next World Cup because they were going to bring more money to the table than than Ireland, for example. And, you know, Japan has opened up a new a new market, uh, but it's also going to um, pay its way financially um, to World Rugby. So if the if the cash cow is the World Cup, um, well, I think as as rugby people, we can accept, you know, some, um, some decisions made around where that's based and the layout of that. But the rest of it, the, the rest of the, the global, global season structure, for me, there's two issues here. Um, and I'm not really overly concerned with Owen Farrell's one around the club constraints I mean I think if you just look at it from an international point of view um, I do think player welfare you know um, international rugby is another step up again and to uh, increase the load on players is dangerous in a time when we're trying to you know manage their injuries um, and, and, and look after them and then the other thing is you know the Pacific Na- Island Nations um, I think it would be absolutely detrimental to them they they don't get a, a fair crack at a whip um, in terms of preparation time, in terms of um, facilities, in terms of budgets, etc. But they are a huge part of, of world rugby, and we are all, you know, um, we all benefit from seeing their um, ability. You know, we, we Mata, the, the Edinburgh number eight. You know, he's he's a joy to watch. He he, he brightens up our uh, our weekends. You know, um, and he's just one of of hundreds of of talented Pacific Island nation players who who play in in Europe um, domestically or or when we see them play for Tonga, Fiji, Samoa, etc. Um, at World Cups or November series. So I think that they're the ones who um, you know we need to fight for this uh, to stop this to protect them to a certain extent because their voice isn't always heard. Well, here to give it to, to give um, their voice some airtime or one of them at least uh, the Samoa captain Chris Vui. Uh, also spoke within that statement that was released by the IRPC and he said for countries in this bracket and for Pacific Islanders in particular our biggest issue has always been the club versus country factor we feel that a 12 year deal is not workable particularly when it presents no hope of advancement during that period this will have the dangerous knock on effect of luring senior players away from their countries and more towards the clubs which is the exact opposite of what we're all trying to achieve mm. Just on that I mean Chris Fui's plays for Bristol um, and Bristol have a lot of Samoan players but Part of the attraction of going to Bristol is you know Pat Lamb as a you know as a Samoan is not going to um, I suppose is not going to disencourage you to go play for your country. You know there's no coincidence that um, players like to go there because they know he's going to be favourite to them. But there is there's been examples in France and, and other clubs where players are discouraged from travelling in November or you know or, or going back in June to play um, and they're, they're caught in, in in a very tricky situation because they've got mortgages bills to pay some of them are supporting extended families back in the islands um, and clubs aren't always as fair and and showing the integrity they should um, to allow those players play for club and country mm. so you're just going to get a situation where essentially what we're saying is really good international players from Fiji, Tonga, Samoa retiring from international rugby because their club is going to pay them really well for that and they're not, not going to want to travel back for what are going to be tier two tests for the next 10 years. So there, there's no incentive for them to continue to play. Obviously there's national pride but on a professional basis their clubs are going to have an even stronger hand to play by saying listen stay here retire from international rugby which would just be a travesty as Bernard says so many of the best players in rugby come from that that region it's not just them either like you yeah. look at the world rugby rankings and Georgia are number 12 at the moment they won't be involved they won't be in it but Italy are 15 yeah. and will be Fiji in are 9th in, in France yeah. um, but they won't be involved Fiji won't yeah, exactly. Fiji won't be, they won't be involved either so they're actually look, in the it, top 10 nations yeah. even look below, below that uh, say tier again and say Brazil are doing great things and like it's it, rugby seems to have built up a bit of a head of steam down there Canada won't be involved as far as I'm aware of it's GDP doesn't matter about the, where, they're, where they're at it's, it's financially the countries yeah. that can bring the most to the party yeah. Yeah. Uh, rather than actually the rugby quality that's a killer so Fiji Fiji have made strides ninth in the world but yes and they're incredibly um, they they incredibly talented incredibly exciting to watch um, it, it get, rugby gives them a, a a way out of, of Fiji and changes you know their families' lives. Um, plus, they get the, they're incredibly proud to play for a country, whether it's in sevens or or mm. at, at 15s level. But they won't be in because they don't bring enough 
bang uh, to, or enough buck to the World Rugby's uh, coffers. Yeah, and all Rugby has done really with the islands is just take from them. There's nothing given back. Like the, the organization is called World Rugby, but essentially this arose and makes it what traditional nations rugby. It should be the title of the, the organization because there's no care for, for the wider world. Yeah, and maybe that's the, wor- the, the the danger of, I suppose, going away from the old amateur boards. I'm not saying that that, that, that whatever structure is better, but when you get people who are whose KPIs are around commercial success, um, that's when decisions are made that maybe aren't you know, about developing the game or, or their, their, their outlook is compromised to a certain extent. You know, if they can bring in, you know, 40% more revenue through this new competition, well then, you know, effectively they've, they've uh, advanced their own CVs and, and uh, have ticked, uh, hit, their, hit their performance criteria. Whereas um, what we really need people in World Rugby who love the game um, and obviously are commercially smart, but um, have, a, have a more global view and aren't, are able to, I suppose, decipher you know what's best for for world world rugby and that's every country or you know and what's best commercially is it surprising to either of you at all how transparent world rugby are being in their greed and like they're not even i know they haven't officially sort of um, yeah, they haven't released anything and i'm sure there will be a couple of little lines here and there about developing the game and it won't be just about these um well what will become top tier nations but like it just, it's so obvious well, that they, it's about money and it, like, surely they yeah. must, they must come at it with the uh, approach that it's not, <laughs> even though they, we all know uh, it yeah, is. But they'd, they'd say we're being naive about how the game needs to grow. Like, <laughs> they'd, they'd kind of almost, they suggest that the money is absolutely pivotal for growing the game. And as we said, yes. that that money is going to go back into those unions that we're talking about. They would have that and probably a sense of realism in that sense. We don't have to worry about the financial side of things. Mm. We're worried about Fiji and, and Samoa and Tonga and Georgia and other nations getting an opportunity, which is easier for us to say because we're not making those money-related um, decisions and there's not another 8 million potentially from a broadcaster per union per season. So, yeah, that's their point of view on it. But Yeah, well, listen, I think it needs to be... Um, and it obviously needs to be discussed. And I, I think... You know the fact that the players have come out this morning and, and and put out a statement without anything being released from World Rugby shows that they've been maybe informed late mm. or surprised by how quickly it's progressed or how yeah. far it's gone down a, a certain road. And um, you know what happens from here. Uh, but I think listen, the great thing is we have an international rugby players um, council, and um, you know it is it's not just the, the rich countries. You know, and the good thing is you've got people like Kieran Reid, Johnny Sexton, etc., um, who will fight for what's what's best, and and you know they'll protect the game um, as best they can, and that's that's really important. I think if you don't have if you don't have a strong players' council, I think you know I'd be very scared of what could get rammed through. Yeah, you know? yeah, that's a really important point. Like in the past, you kind of sometimes wonder about players' bodies and yeah. whether they really. Um, are distinctly enough separated from the unions. Yeah. But this is really strong stuff, really well done from, from the players' point of view. I think the next stage, or the World Rugby's proposed next stage, was in March at the next kind of council meeting that they'd push this deal through. And that's why the players, as you say, have been slightly taken by surprise and why they've had to come out strongly. That's happened really quickly from going from a proposal to, okay, let's get this over the line and signed and sealed in March. So it'll be really interesting to see now what World Rugby do come out with. They haven't commented. Um, we are still going off reports, but certainly this is what the players understand. That's what we're talking mm. about at the moment. That's what they've been informed is happening. Um, and I think it would be great for World Rugby to get involved in the dialogue. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how they intend for the sport to grow outside of those yeah. nations involved. Like, if their argument is that, well, by just playing against each other constantly for the next 12 years, one of or two of Samoa, Fiji, Tonga will emerge as a force is it's nonsensical. Yeah, that hasn't happened with the Six Nations B, the Rugby Europe exactly. Championship. No. Like Georgia have probably had a couple of tough years actually because the competition just hasn't been strong enough. They've won, won, won. Other nations in that bracket, you know, they kind of rise and fall depending on, on the, the cycle of players. So I don't think that's really working. Hmm. It will be interesting to see how that one plays out. Obviously we will uh, no doubt be talking about it again. Actually, just before we finish up there, we just got a statement from World Rugby. Are they listening live? They may be. They're responding strongly here. <laughs> uh, they put out a statement. Um, just running through it. They're talking about... Uh, they're surprised at the um, expression of concern from international rugby players. 
Um, and they say they won't comment on specifics. They say it's inappropriate to comment on specifics while there's stakeholder consultation ongoing. However, it's important to note that there have been some assumptions made in the statement regarding the proposed competition structure, which are inaccurate, and that important matters such as playing load and emerging nation opportunities are at the heart of constructive dialogue on the overall concept. Um, there's a bit about consumer research shows that the fans want something like this, but um, not too much other detail in there. I guess that's what we need, isn't it? The, you know, the fact that the players themselves were pushed to come out that strongly, as Bernard said, it, it's not an ideal situation where there's open conflict in something that should be, I guess, resolved and, and discussed probably behind closed doors before the announcements are made. So I think that's going to be really useful if World Rugby do provide a bit of clarity um, and maybe that would help calm, thing down, calm, thing, calm things down, but there's not exactly clarity in that. It says... That's an emergency. Emerging state. nation opportunities are at the heart of constructive dialogue on the overall concept, but we need to find out what that is. That's um, absolute jabberwocky is all that is. It's, it's <laughs> just a response to a very strong statement. It's like we need to get something out. It's mealy-mouthed. Yeah. Um, so yeah, watch this space. Mm. What we've learned is that you can never trust a man who wears runners with a suit. Closer to home then. There's a little bit of uh, movement on the domestic front. Uh, Jack McGrath seems to be heading north to Ulster, but Murray, your understanding of the situation is that it's slightly different to the Joey Carberry situation in that it's um, kind of player-led more so than, well, we're not going to say Carberry was forced to move anywhere, but it kind of was. <laughs> if you say he wasn't. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, in fairness to Irish Independent, they were the first ones to report this. Um but yeah, it looks like it's quite an advanced stage. Um, kind of on all sides, they're insisting it's not signed and sealed yet. Um, but it does seem to be well on the road. And, and it seems to have come from Jack McGrath himself, who has had a tough, what, year, 18 months even. Him and himself and Keane Healy were really uh, fighting quite closely for the number one shirt for Ireland and Leinster for the last three, four years. It really was a good battle. Keane Healy obviously had his well-documented struggles and, and nearly retired, actually. So McGrath pushed on a, a little bit there. Um, and now it's really changed. He's struggled with a couple of injuries. He had that hip injury this season um, and hasn't been f- as fit as he would have liked. And he's really fallen back. Keane Healy's the clear number one. And even now Ed Byrne is putting real pressure on Jack McGrath for those matchday squads in Leinster. So... Um, I think the idea, we're not sure exactly who, who planted it there, but I think McGrath came to Leinster with this with this notion that he was going to go to, to, to Ulster. And obviously, Ulster would be massively boosted by signing a player of his quality. They're doing a bit of a rebuild under Dan McFarland. And I think they're quite hopeful that this will get over the line um, in, in the next couple of days or weeks. But it will be, from Leinster's point of view, it would be disappointing to lose another homegrown player to a rival province. Um, while they would feel that, listen, Ed Byrne and Peter Dooley have, have pushed on and and they might be capable of, of covering for that blow. But it is an interesting one because the landscape has kind of shifted, hasn't it? Since News 4 came in, this is probably what he wanted. Players going, actually, I need to go and be playing all the games. You know, you look at Jordy Murphy going to Ulster for that reason um, and he's involved with Ireland again over over the Six Nations. Even the fact that Dave Kilcoyne has, has pushed beyond Jack McGrath because he's playing so regularly with Munster and impressing there. Um, and Jack Carty with Connacht pushed ahead of Ross Byrne because he's been starting every game and, and having the opportunity to impress, whereas Ross Byrne is limited to some of those Pro 14 games. So it is interesting that we're having that kind of shift towards players going, actually, I might have a better chance up there in Ulster than I do here at Leinster. Hmm. Frankly, it is his own business. But Bernard, are you surprised that given how the dynamic shifted between McGrath and Healy kind of twice in that McGrath usurped Healy and then it went around the other way, that he doesn't maybe back himself to try and uh, overthrow Keane Healy again and, and would rather play elsewhere? Um, I just think he's probably very conscious of of how short his career is. Mm. And um, in fairness to Healy, when Healy's on top form, I don't think many in the world would get ahead of him. That's just the, the reality of it. But for Jack um, to give himself the best possible chance, he probably feels he needs to play 60 minutes every week. Um, and that's... That's not always. That's not. That's not going to be easy in in Leinster. Um, and you know he's British and Irish line. You know he's a he's a top top class international rugby player. Um, and you know the reason these guys are top class is because they back themselves. So he will feel if I get sixty minutes every week, I can get ahead of Keane Healy. I was ahead of him before, but he's probably he probably feels um, you know what's the point in taking the risk. Of that not even happening in Leinster, you know. At least if he's playing every week in Ulster, and obviously he has to go and get ahead of Eric O'Sullivan in, in Ulster if he goes there. But it's up to him then. It's up yeah. to him to show the form. But if you feel that game time is what's holding you back, and you can't get in your province, 
I think um, that's the that's the worry for Leinster. How can uh, how can they manage? And in fairness, they are very good at it. They generally are very good at, at managing people's game time. And in fairness, I think Jack's one is a little bit different because he had that operation in November. So it's not Leinster's fault he hasn't had enough games. But um, you know, he, he he's basically competing directly with. You know, if there's a British and Irish Lions tour this summer, Keane Healy would probably be number one loose head. So it's on his doorstep. But I think also the problem for Leinster is they're going to, they saw, you know, you see Tom Farrell going to Connacht and making the, the Irish squad. You see, you know, Murray mentioned Jordy Murphy. You know, you see John Cooney, you know. So you see Nick McCarthy now going to Munster. Does he feel in Munster, you know, he's going to get, he's going to be his number two, for example. And, and but Connor's going to be away a lot. And that's going to be his chance to, to get higher than he would if he was behind Gibson Park and, and Luke McGrath. So um, it's, it's going to be interesting, that, you know, um, as, as Murray said, Nusifora probably wanted a situation where guys are actually looking to move province for themselves rather than um, being forced or, or being advised to do it from an IRFU point of view because obviously politically that's that's messy. But uh, I think the good thing as well is that the environment and the, and the culture and the setup and facilities in the four provinces now is very strong. You know, so um, it's not a step back. Like Connacht could easily be in the European Cup, Champions Cup, you know, based on their on their performances this year in the Pro 14. So you're not just going to just play Pro 14 or or Challenge Cup. You're literally going somewhere where there's a chance to win silverware. And in all four provinces, if Ulster rebuild under Dan McFarland, like they're looking looking to do, you know, they they'll be up there with Leinster and Munster in terms of budget and and and, and squad depth. Eventually, not not yet, but um, so that's there's not really a huge amount of difference between moving province. The only thing is you're you're leaving potentially your province of your of your birth, and that's a big thing. You know what I mean? And that's that's a hard thing. So if Jack does go to Ulster. You know he's a Leinster man, true and true. Um, but I think it's becoming that's the problem a little bit to a certain extent. It's becoming less parochial, maybe, and more franchise. Well, I was I was going to ask. Or, you that. Sorry, hasn't become more franchise, but it can It could. It could. It could. It, yeah, yes. in ten years' time, based uh, on current trends, yeah. we'll say. So if you had a draft system, etc., you know. So if um, if if for example the other provinces academies weren't didn't have the same talent as. As as Leinster, right, which is obviously where a lot of them are coming, the, kid, the young kids are coming from. That it was a draft system for the guys to go to provincials, and then basically they're they're Munster, Ulster, Connacht players from eighteen, you know, and that that obviously then takes away from the rugby thing. But it's just a very it's a very tricky one for Leinster because they feel that they've produced these players and they have, and they want to keep them all. Yeah, how, how? I, 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 like I sympathise massively with with Leinster, but I also understand completely why Jordy Murphy would go, why Joey Carby would go. And why Jack McGrath would go if he decides to go? How big a thing actually is provincial loyalty? Like, if you look outside of rugby, there aren't many kind of walks of life in which it's hugely important to be from a province. Like our, our parochialism in Ireland is generally county based. Yeah, so, but it's 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 in rugby, it, and it's one of the key reasons why the Irish provinces are are successful is because they have a unique identity. So I I, I kind of said, oh, I'm worried, I'd be afraid it could become like a franchise system, but. I think you know what we have is unique and it's special, and you know so ninety percent of the Leinster team are from Leinster. You know, um, I'm not sure what Munster is now. It used to be nearly ninety five percent or hundred percent, but it's still definitely more than 80 percent. And and strong characters in there like Peter Manny, um, you know, uh, you know Conor Murray, Keith Earls, etc., who make sure that if you go into that Munster dressing room. You know what you're representing, what's what's happened in the past, and and people buy into it, and that's very strong. Ulster's obviously incredibly uh, unique in itself, and, and Connacht have, have created a, a really good identity there, started by Pat Lamb to a certain extent, and you know looking to to, to really represent the whole province. Um, so that's a unique thing that Irish teams have, much more so than the Viva Premiership team, or Gallagher Premiership teams, I think, or. Welsh regions have struggled a little bit with that, with that identity. Scarlets are probably the best at it, and they've been the most successful in recent years. Obviously, Ospreys historically have been, but um, and Glasgow and, and Edinburgh have have created, to, you know, to a certain extent after a couple of years of trial and error. So that's the we. It's unique to us. It's a massive driver of success. It's a massive driver of culture, but it's probably going to be. It's just very. We have to be careful. We don't lose it as well. You know. I would hate to see, like, if, um, you know, you want to have people um, who are from that province, you know, in your leadership group, in your, in your, in your, in your standards group and, and driving it. And then anyone who comes into that, you know, they, they, they accept those behaviours and, and they rep, they do their best to represent it. And so, and I think that's, if you look at, you know, Scott Fardy and, and James Lowe, Easton of Seaway, et cetera, 
Leinster very rarely have made a mistake in the transfer market, and some of that's down to you know very good research by guys to be in Leo, etc. But also, it's the dressing room they go into that because there's already a really good culture and identity that they don't want to slip off. I mean, you look at the amount of players who go into France or, or England who have great reputations but actually underperform, but that's because the, the culture isn't strong enough in that in that group. It's also important commercially as well. Like Performance-wise, it's pivotal, but even all the marketing around the, the provinces is based on that identity of where you're from, the 12 counties, whatever, Munster, Pride and Passion. So it's important as well off the pitch, I guess, in terms of people coming and attaching themselves to... I'm a Munster man, I'm a Leinster woman, I'm from Connacht, I'm from Ulster. That thing is really important as well. So the performance side, definitely, it's massive. There is going to be an inevitable dilution of it. It's not going to be as strong potentially as it was just because, as you say, careers are short. Guys want to play a lot of games. They want to achieve. They don't want to be in tracksuits. That was the term Nusifora used when he came in. I don't want players sitting around in tracksuits just happy to have the badge on their crest going for coffee in town. Um, and not actually playing games. So there's all sorts of elements in it, but I agree with Bernard. Keeping an element of it, particularly because it's been so important in the provincial success over the years, it's just really uh, vital to keep that there. So Ireland's victory in Rome was obviously heavily discussed over the last few days. Um I won't ask you the sort of general, what were your impressions of it? I think we've had enough of that. Uh, do we need to calm down a small bit, Bernard, or are we actually in trouble? No, we need to calm down massively. <laughs> it's an absolute joke. I think it's a farce, the, the level of criticism, scrutiny, um, and I suppose hype and pressure that we're putting on this team. You know, we've played three games. We were underperformed against England, but I think England are a very good side. Okay, and we, um, we had a lot of our good players were a lot of our most important players maybe undercooked a little bit going into that game um, which you only find out on the day you don't it's hard to it's hard to spot that beforehand um, and so it was down to injuries to, to a certain extent uh, in terms of managing game times game time leading into it and then obviously we went to Scotland and we went to Italy and, and, and we won you know we won the Italian game in the end with a bonus point there was elements of, of both performances which are frustrating um, but we're not a bad team we haven't come a bad team and, and people are trying to you know, come up with all kinds of different solutions um, to, you know, to actually fix the problem. When if you don't, if you don't, you got to trust the coaches um, who are, I would say, are pretty good coaches, um, and you got to trust the the leadership group of of Amani, Sexton, Best, etc. Um, to fix it internally. You know, and not go trying to pull a pull a rabbit out of a hat and, you know, go down to Tormelinas for a few days on the piss or whatever isn't probably the answer, you know what I mean? But all these things are being bandied around now and it's just, I think it's just nonsense. I think we just need one one good performance to get us back on track and hopefully that comes against France and, you know, we could easily finish the season having won, having won four out of five and, and be in tip-top condition. If we if we don't, it's obviously going to be a bit of a blow. Um, but this team, we're never a million miles better than everybody else. You know, I think we won a lot of tight games We um, and, and, you know, when you're the when you're the the world leader or you know the best team in Europe, obviously then teams will scrutinise you and try and find flaws in your game. Whereas if you're if you're just finishing third, um, and you know then there's not as much focus on you. But the Ireland uh, England had a great opportunity to put massive uh, analysis into Ireland and England. Don't forget they won 16 games in a row. You know when Eddie came in first, and then they had difficulties because obviously Ireland and all those other teams were able to find, I suppose, little weaknesses or or, or stop their their strengths to a certain extent. And we've gone through that now, and it's just a case of adapting. And, and to be honest, I don't think we we can still. The thing is, we haven't actually implemented what we, what got us there. Um, and that was that was a pressure, you know, maybe a boring type of game plan. Um, getting a lot of A zone entries, getting into their twenty two a lot, and then being effective in there. We actually haven't implemented that, so you can't even say our game plan hasn't has has fallen a little bit. I just think there's been some inaccuracies in terms of, um, the, you know, somebody kicking, and that's coming down to the individuals. We maybe haven't kicked enough, and um, our breakdown hasn't been as sharp as it has been. But that's because we were. You know, world best of the breakdown, so teams are really targeting that now, and we just got to find um, a way of getting back to to being leaders in that. But I I think that 
I think this is still a very good team. I think, you know, Ring Rose being out has been a, a blow. Stander being out for the last two games has been a blow. Um, you know, Devin Toner hasn't played. Our line-out has struggled a little bit. So there's reasons why we haven't been as cohesive and as dominant as we would like. But we still have... We still have gone away from home in one or two games. We now have a home game and then we go to Cardiff. Um, and it could be, you know, in theory you could be playing for the championship, but you're going to be playing for something, you know. And that's uh, um, that's where I see it, I think, that you got to trust these players and coaches to to fix it. You know, they have the answers. They know more, a lot more than we do. Well, we might as well go home, I think. Uh, we've <laughs> problem solved. Uh, what, like, Murray, I was just thinking uh, a couple of days ago about how if you were to go back a few years... You know, you've actually probably even as recently as last year, there were th- uh, maybe not accusations, but certainly it was suggested Ar- that Ireland were too reliant on emotion, say on big occasions, and that would galvanise a team. And uh, that was when we were getting some of our best victories. Chicago being one. Looking at France, clearly, like they they have a, a lot to offer, and Ireland are going to be taking that game extremely seriously. But like, is there a case to be made that like going to Cardiff with Wales chasing a Grand Slam? Uh, Ireland potentially having a championship on the line or maybe not but that they just need that one massive game where they're actually up against it on paper uh, to galvanise them again and, and maybe get things going Yeah I think they'll I think they'll be as motivated for the France game because they are so performance driven like they're obsessed with their own performance maybe a little bit too obsessed at the moment and that's probably the challenge for the coaches is just to remind these guys who are world class players that they can relax and trust their skills and that they don't need to buy into all what is a I have to say I'm not too surprised by the reaction because this always happens with yeah. Ireland, especially in the Schmidt era. It's either, you know, you're never as good as it, as they say or you're never as bad as they say you are. It's always extremes in the reaction. So I kind of expected this, to be honest. Um, and I'd say they probably expected it as well. And I'd say internally, while they're frustrated, they'll be quite calm about, listen, we're, we're not far off. Some of the stuff they've done in this tournament has been really good. Some of it's been bad. I think that applies to every individual as well. Some really good moments from basically every player on the pitch as well as some frustrating ones as you saw against Italy like you mentioned the pressure game the what was Quinn Roos uh, try that was probably the only time they've done it yeah. 17 or 18 phases really good variety actually in the phase play uh, some good ball carrying a little few wrinkles like furlong offloading to Roo Chris Farrell on that lovely kind of skip across the, the forward carrier and he gets that blind line and, and sets up the try basically on the next phase. So there are those elements there. They're cutting teams on on, on set-piece strikes. This try against Scotland was superb. They obviously cut Italy and, and should have finished that opportunity. And they have created chances to really change the complexion of games. Against Scotland as well, there were a number of opportunities where if the ball had gone to hand, it was going to be a bonus point win. And then you're talking about a really really good bounce back from Ireland and um, so I think from their point of view they'll just try try and stay calm and they will be obsessed with getting that performance against against Scotland um, and then again the or against rather against France and then again the picture will change and everything will be rosy again yeah look at look at Wales right so Wales went to France terrible first half and you know everyone was saying after the game that Wales didn't win the game France lost it you know, France made two massive errors so Wales get a win in, in France then they go to Italy they make 10 changes really poor Right, so not a huge amount of difference between our first two games in terms of performance levels, yeah. and then you know England go to Cardiff, probably don't haven't seen a lot in, in Wales, haven't probably don't rate them as highly as um, as they should have, and Wales pull off a you know a, for, first forty minutes of that Wales were more great, um, they looked knackered at halftime, but they found a way to win the game, um, and you know England system let them down etc. Loads of excuses, but Wales won the match, and now Wales are unbeatable. You know what I mean? And that's just, they've only had really had one good game at home against England where they knew what England were going to bring, whereas we didn't. So I think, you know, the championships, it's its its a lot about, you know, who you play and when you play them, you know, in terms of the order and where you're at in terms of injuries, etc. So I think that, oh, listen, a lot of it's down to everyone is underrating Italy and saying Italy are useless. And like, some of the punditry about Italy was completely disrespectful. I mean, mm. Connor Shea's, uh, like was being written off as being, you know, coaching the worst Italian team of all time. Sure, their recent results are, are very poor. But if you look at actually what they did against Ireland, you know, they were they were they were very competitive. You know, they they sprung into life in transition. You know, they um, they had massive energy. Their defense was really well organized, um, and they gave us nothing for free. You know, we made a couple, some handling errors in, in strong positions, but it wasn't as if you know, they were just standing off us and letting us do what we want. I mean, it was really well-organised, intense, um, aggressive defence. And in attack, you know, they have some players who are very dangerous. But, um, you know, you can just get caught away. You have to you have to understand that it's not as easy as just going to Rome 
and you know they're going to lie down. You're going to do what you want. You have to be accurate. And Ireland weren't as accurate as it needed to be early in the game, which gave the, the Italians a sniff. And they sensed, you know, they sensed blood, and, and they played quite well, and, and it became a battle. Mm. And and probably the fact that we've got through that and with the with the win and a bonus point in the long term will actually be good for us because you can be guaranteed that we're not everything's not going to go our way against France and, and Wales for like eighty minutes. When we go to the World Cup, we're not going to be dominating games for eighty minutes. So we're going to be in time. There's going to be times when we're in trouble and we find a way to win. People spoke about New Zealand, you know, when they beat Ireland, um, uh, when Joe, an early part of Joe's uh, career, where with five minutes to go, they're behind and they found a way to win. And wow, that's unbelievable, you know. But if you were to be really critical, say, well, how did they get in a position? to be behind with five minutes to go because they're the All Blacks and we're only Ireland, you know? So you have to understand that it's not a perfect um, scenario all the time where your plan works from A to Z and they're only humans. They have, a, you know, they're getting frustrated because they want to put the perfect game together, um, but they they will get back to the level they're at in 2018 because um, they're not even a million miles away from it now. They're yeah. not, like they're not a million miles away from it. They're not where they are, want to be, but... Um, you have to take into account that other teams now have 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 kind of changed how they defend against us or how they play against us, and we just have to make a little adaption to that, and we'll be back on track. Yeah, yeah. even saying that they're not far away from twenty. Like think back to some of the victories in the Grand Slam, yeah. played we, with we imperfections, were, all of the games apart from yeah. picking him really. Yes, like there we were, were loads talking to Stuart Hogg yeah. last night, and yeah. if the pass from Hugh Jones had gone to hand for him or Peter Horn's line break as well, then Ireland would have lost that game probably. Stockton got two interceptions in the championship, you know. Yeah. At the same time, I think it's understandable and it's fair that there is some criticism because some of their, some aspects of their performance have been poor. It's probably just a little bit too slanted towards the doom and gloom at the moment. Yeah, so yeah. If, you, if you're a Real Madrid fan or a Liverpool fan or, or whatever, you know, you judge your team over the season, so 25, 30 games. Yeah. And uh, same with Saracen, same with Leinster. Like, very few professional teams or elite teams are full metal jackets for 30 weeks of the year. You know, they, they will have dips. You know what I mean? We, mm. we won the Champions Cup in, in 2009. We were the best team in Europe, according to the, if you read the records. But there was times that year where we were very average. You know, we, we lost to Castaway. We won a quarterfinal uh, 6-5 or against Harlequins. Like, but it doesn't matter. You know what I mean? It's about about managing those difficult moments and getting better and keeping your heads heads on, sticking sticking together, you know, um, and being good when it counts. You know, and for Ireland, being good when it counts will hopefully be around four and five. You know, as long as you have enough points scattered up to still be in the contest. And we obviously, we made a massive error by losing to England, but that, that happens. You know, teams will lose one-off games. Uh, a couple of emails to get through here. One from Kevin McCarthy, who emailed uh, Mr. Kinsler across from me. He says, Hi, Murray. Loving the podcast and all of your excellent analysis. Here's a question for you. Do Ireland use any sports psychologists? If they do, they're not doing a good job. <laughs> it seems to me a lot of Ireland's problems are in the head at the moment. Uh, Murray, Sexton, uh, everyone is saying, is out of form. Uh, is it more a confidence issue that their heads are not in the right place? Sexton's petulant exit on Sunday was reminiscent of a young Andy Murray when he consistently lost control when things were not going his way. I actually thought he meant Andy Dunn there briefly. Uh, any thoughts <laughs> so regards Kevin McCarthy? They Personally, do, do they, they do yeah, use Yeah, Ender McNulty's still involved. Yeah. I'm not sure if there's all the time, but you saw him on the sideline a couple of games and he, he's been at training sessions. He's been with them for years now, works with some players. I know some guys use their own individual um, psychologists or, or that sort of things. Magicians. Keith, exactly, Keith Earls and Keith, uh, Keith Barry, mm. two Keiths. Um, so there is a, a lot of that going on. And yeah, uh, they, they do spend a bit of time working on that. Even Joe and his mind gym and that kind of stuff, yeah, they, they, they work psychologically. They, they do, but it's, again, it's not an exact science. So, you know, Bob Rotella, famous uh, golf psychologist, if he had the answers, well then it'd be just basically whoever can pay him the most money, he would work with them and they'd win all the majors. I mean, there's a it's a combination. It's like the psychological element of it, is 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 very important, and Ireland would work, um, you know, with Enda and as you said, players have their own. They would all have their own routines, processes, etc. But so do all the opposition. You know, it's just part of it. It's not. Um, there's no perfect uh, recipe to be in, you know, the, in the zone all the time. It's, it's a combination of, of a multitude of different things, and that's why, that's why I think the you know the guys like, you know, Joe Schmidt, Eddie Jones, Warren Gatland, um, who've been around, you know, Steve Hansen, who've been around 20 years, Graham Henry, you know, they have, the reason they're so successful and have longevity is because they're actually able to, I suppose, manage the mood of the group um, in lots of different situations. So when they're 
they're five from five and they're overconfident or, or they sense that, you know, they address that. When they've had a little bit different confidence, they're able to get them back up again. And um, and it's not just, you know, the sports psychology. It's it's, it's the leadership group of the team, uh, the players. It's the bag man. It's, it's, a, it's a collective effort. You know, if you know, when teams are successful, we saw last year, I, I saw a photograph of, of the management, the backup, the backroom team for Ireland. You know, it's huge. There's, I don't know, man, there's mm. 19, 20 people in it. And they all have a massive role to play in terms of in terms of the, the mindset and the vibe in the group. So the, Ireland have a sports psychologist. He's very good. Um, players use him. They, you know, some of them use other, other people. But it's not, it's, it's not exact science, you know, and everyone else has one as well. So it's a case of, and sometimes you can only address something that becomes an issue. You know, so um, if 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 the body language slips off, or if people, you know, um, if people are low in confidence, well, then they will go and get help. Whereas um, they will maybe go and get an extra session and identify that they're struggling for confidence. But often you don't see that until there's been errors. I spoke to Keith Barry about his work with Keith Earls, and he wasn't giving too much away. To be fair. Um, plastic magician I guess but uh, he made the point that a lot of the work is based around just actually enjoying your rugby yeah. that in the professional era obviously with the pressure of a country on these guys shoulders at the moment it can be very um, easy to kind of withdraw inside your own head and you start to overthink things and then errors become compounded etc whereas we saw Keith Earls in Rome was probably Ireland's best player and has been consistently good despite being described as a stopgap by uh, Stephen Jones only a few weeks ago but uh, I'm wondering like then and sorry and also many people have raised what you raised there a minute ago about uh, body language and Johnny Sexton coming off frustrated as uh, Kevin mentions in his email how much of it is actually just about getting back to enjoying it or is that even possible really when you're yeah, in that type of a pressure it, oh, cooker someone like, someone like Johnny enjoys winning and, you know, what you saw from him, uh, what everyone saw uh, uh, on the pitch against Italy, I mean, that's 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 authentic Johnny. Johnny's been like that since he's 18. So I, I wouldn't be worried about that at all uh, because that's what he is. That he, that's what he stands for. That's why if, if you're going out into the pitch with Johnny, you know, you know that he'll he'll do everything in his power to help you win and then obviously that influences you trying to do the same for him so that's why he's world player of the year on and 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 has a, had an esteemed career already and will continue to have an esteemed career what I'd be more worried about is when if if Keith Earls now wasn't you know was was becoming like Johnny you know Keith Earls has found his um uh, his way of, of doing things which is obviously to to relax more you know take in the take in the occasion enjoy the moment um but that was true trial and error you know if you speak to Keith Earls early on in his career he he was he had anxiety you know he panicked he he doubted himself which is hard to believe you're someone as gifted as him but that's that's what that's what these athletes go through yeah. um, and uh, some of them come in and the, the modern uh, the younger generation are seeming to be nearly perfect at, at 18, 19. You know, you see the Scott Pennies and, you know, the the Harry Burns and these fellas and they seem to have that inner self-belief, the process, etc. And they probably don't have to go, well, hopefully they won't have to go through the the dips and the, and, and the, uh, the peaks and the troughs that maybe some of, you know, the guys who are 30, 30, 30 32, 33 have because maybe we weren't, or they weren't as well uh, educated or, 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 um, or, formed at a younger younger age but the reality is I, I'd be more worried if, if if you see Johnny Sexton smiling and laughing when, we, when he makes mistakes well then I'd be more worried no <laughs> yeah. but seriously it's, it's yeah. you know everybody has a role to do Rory Best's role, uh, his leadership style is calm you know what I mean he's calm he's calculated uh, Peter Manny is fire and brimstone you know Conor Murray is is relatively calm you know he does his job incredibly well Johnny is is outspoken, you know, and if he feels the mood isn't right, he'll tell people about it. But um and any people who are, you know, who have hum who add humor, you know, people who are just a steady, you know, they're gonna be eight out of ten every week. And that's that's what team is about and squads are about. And 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 uh, so I know people will criticize because we didn't play as well as people would like, but that's that's Johnny Sexton being Johnny Sexton. If you don't like that and, and you want him to change um you know to be like Garrett Anscombe he can do that, but he won't be the the driver of, of Leinster and Ireland. Fair. And on another email here from Kyle Flanagan, which I would say is up there with one of the greatest emails ever sent, actually. Bernard, you, you got a glimpse of it before uh, you came in. Um, hello, the kids are six. I'm working from home. I have a few rugby questions. Firstly, best wishes to the kids, Kyle. Uh, he says, pundits have talked about how this Irish team aren't more vocal, supporting each other, slapping backs, etc. 
do we need a talented wanker in the team? Our sponsors, Volkswagen, are going to love this email, by the way. England have two Alangi, brackets, bit of a wanker. Farrell, full steam ahead, choo-choo wanker. Wales have a few wankers. When you play with a talented wanker who rolls the opposition and has that edge in the face of opposition, it brings hunger and motivation. Could Levy be the wanker that we're missing? Uh, in the Italian games, was Stockdale in touch when his head was over the line? Uh, I think it was in the 27th or 29th minute. He and Wayne Barnes shared a cheeky smile. Uh, is a head on the line, if you have possession, considered in touch? Murray, you actually looked at that, didn't yeah, you? he's in touch. He <laughs> was that, in touch. Was, yeah, I was looking at it. it was funny. He just, his head kind of nicked it. It should have been line out. And Bernard, with regards to wankers, um, I would say that if you'd asked, if you were to ask rather an English rugby fan or a Welsh rugby fan, describe Johnny Sexton in five words, three words even, two of them would be talented and wankers. So it's not, I think it's a brave email, but it's nonsense. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> no, but like, yeah. so what, what? Very brave. No, but what, um, Talent ID now, we, we we set up a new column for, for wankerism or, or level of wanker. <laughs> We're going to have wanker of the week uh, on the podcast. No, listen, um, I don't think that's that's the issue. I don't think two laggies a wanker or any of those lads, uh, Farrell, et cetera. You know, they're they're top top men. And, and I know fans, like, listen, you know, it, it, it's, it's what you like. So some people go crazy and give out about a toje, you know, being... Over celebrating uh, knock-ons and stuff, and, yeah. and, and you know, slap, black slap, and it depends on what you like. If you think that's, if you think that's a key part of of, of a winning team, that has never really been Ireland's way of doing things. Mm. And like, what's you know, it, it's everyone has their own way of setting up. Joe's big thing is being humble. You know what I mean? So, um, I would imagine he wouldn't like that type of over. And that's 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 I said. That's led us to being reasonably successful. You know what I mean? So, um, the worst thing that could happen, this won't happen because. The coach is too good. If they actually say, listen, we don't want to be humble, we want to be uh, really in your mm. face, you know, um, out there, slagging off opposition, blah, blah, blah. Then I think Ireland would, you know, that, then you second guess yourself and you go down a, a different route, very close to a World Cup. That's that's not going to happen and I don't think we should even consider it, even though some fans obviously might like we had that type of player. Um, I think we have enough good players who do their job incredibly well and uh, we, we'll be fine. There actually is more to the email, but it's all clean. Volkswagen will be very relieved to hear. Uh, I know it's a while away, but for Lions selection, do the players have to be playing actively for their home nation to be selected? Bo was in South Africa in 2009, um, but picked, uh, though he was being selected for Ireland. Uh, my question is really, would Zebo, Ryan, O'Brien, etc. be uh, eligible for selection? Thanks for the podcast. Gavin, it is nothing without you. You are the role to Murray and Andy's fig. But firstly, <laughs> firstly, Kyle, that's that's the reason. That's the reason. Maybe one of the nicest yeah. things anybody's ever said to me. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, they would. It would be available. It would be available for section. Absolutely, I think it would be very tricky to convince a head coach of the Lions if you weren't playing Test rugby though that you're ready to go on a tour like that. Um, mm. I think it depends would, on the coach. They would be. It, it probably Scatland, does. Yeah, Scotland. He, he could do it easily. He picks on character as well, yeah. doesn't he? Um, yeah, he does. So. Exactly, it depends on the coach. If it's Joe Schmidt or someone like that, I would imagine they'll pick test, recently test-proven players, but someone who's more interested in the dynamic of the group maybe would, would go for a couple of characters. Just before we get into Pro 14 chat, I managed to catch up with John Muldoon this week, a Connacht legend after 17 years with the province and now defence coach over at Bristol Bears. Just started off by chatting to him about how the season has gone so far for Bristol. Um, I think inconsistency is probably the big thing. Um, we, we, we're doing some very good things and um, we're very naive in some of the things that we're doing as well. But look, I think um, we're on a learning curve. There's a lot of new players here and um, it doesn't come overnight when you've got a, a new coach. And um, I suppose there's two ways of doing things. You can build layers and try and... Um, some teams or some coaches have come into uh, teams and just built their defence up and tried to add layers in into their attack but we've tried to do everything here um, I think there was a turnover of 14 or 15 players at the start of the season and um, it takes a while for all that to bed in so look it's, um, it can be quite frustrating at times when we make um, some silly errors but I think that's, that's part of the game and um, a lot of what's going on here at the moment is very much like the early doors of what um, Pat brought into Connacht. Some lads um, just not as quick to pick up the game and just uh, getting used to um, working under pressure and getting used to the game plan that Pat's implemented here. And obviously, 
that that game plan has changed um, as well from what it was in Connacht and um, will continue to change all the time because that's the type of coach and coaching staff we have here is that we're not um, we're not happy to just continue to do the same thing. We're looking to progress and drive forward and have new ideas and try out new things. Yeah, absolutely. And how's life off the pitch, I guess? A, a young family now, does it feel like home over there yet? Yeah, definitely. Um, I moved over here initially on my own in May, um, which was quite tough after, I suppose, 17 years in Connacht and then um, moving here three weeks later. But I suppose the, the excitement of a new challenge and something new um, kind of clouded that and didn't really... Uh, I suppose didn't really hit home that I was moving that quickly but um, it was good um, in a way being able to come here and not have to worry about rushing home to see um, my wife and, and newborn son so in terms of obviously it was, um, it was tough not having them here but in another way it was good to be able to stay here late in the evenings understand um, get to know some of the players some of the coaches get to know the game plan better get to know the people get to know um, the the club and everything to that goes with it. So in, in that way, it was good. But um, I was happy when uh, my family did move over eventually. And, and yeah, they're well settled in now. At this stage, they're they're loving Bristol. Um, it's a very very nice city and not too dissimilar to Galway um, in terms of very young population, um, big student town, and um, very vibrant city. So yeah, look, it's. Um, it's been an easy sell and an easy settling in period, so they're still enjoying it, which makes life an awful lot easier for me because obviously that's the big worry you have yeah. um, when you move from home that um, that your partner and uh, child is going to be able to settle in, and thankfully they've done that seamlessly. That's great. They don't have a Spanish ar- Spanish archer over there, do they? No, no, <laughs> unfortunately not. But look, if it's um, it's if if the weather uh, is like this all the time, then uh, yeah. It's it's a very good start, but um, yeah, it's been it's uh, it's been a good good setting in period, and um, I'm as I said, I'm well setting now. But yeah, no, it's a lovely city, some lots of history and and some very nice buildings and old um, old kind of merchant houses, which is cool enough. So yeah, area I'm living in is is nice. Yeah, brilliant, happy days. Like, how has the transition from being a player so recently directly into being a professional coach? So soon after retirement, how has that transition been? Was it was it a tough process? Uh, yes and no. Obviously, um, like I, I've, it's always it's always going to be difficult making that transition in terms of going from uh, playing to coaching and just getting your point across, presentations, making sure you, you know the the uh, computer packages as you know yourself. It, it all takes a bit of time and it all takes a bit of learning. Um, I suppose the big thing is is being to the point and when you're out there coaching and when you're doing meetings is um, to get your point across as best you can and as we know everyone learns differently and to try and cater for the people um, who learn differently but maybe that be visual maybe that be walking through stuff um, drawing it up on a on a, on a computer program drawing it up on a flip chart etc etc so, yeah it's all it's all new um, it's all a new learning curve for me and um, I've I did a little bit of coaching with Galwegians and um, Monavé, which is in junior league in Connacht before that. So I probably coached for maybe six or seven years at a lower level, but it, it's very, very different to coming in here. And obviously the fact that it's new relationships with new people as well, um, all that comes in on top of it. So you're building all that as well as um, as well as that. So yeah, look, it's very, very different. Um Sorry, there's a photocopy machine here going in the background. Can you still <laughs> hear me, all right? Yeah, I can hear yeah. you. Um, but yeah, look, it, it's very different. But also, um, the opportunity to come over here, like as you said, it's it's not um, every day that you can leave a job that you worked at um, playing rugby and then come straight into a job in a professional environment. Um, it doesn't really happen in Ireland. Um, that's the truth of it, because obviously there's a lot of coaches there and there's not too many... Um, job opportunities there so um, when this when this job came up and obviously the fact that I had a previous relationship with both Pat and Connor um, it was a bit of a no-brainer for me but yeah look I'm learning um, I'm learning loads and there's still a lot to learn uh, there's the intricacies of some of the stuff that uh, especially um, the way we defend our scrum and line outs I'm still learning an awful lot of Pat in that area 
as you mentioned earlier on, John, 17 incredible years in Connacht. How much do you miss it? Oh, yeah, of course I miss Galway. A lot of friends there. Um, a lot of good memories, everything. Yes, it's, um, it's, it's, it's always been home for me. And um, obviously the fact that my wife is from Salt Hill as well and is a Galway girl, it'll, uh, it'll always remain special. And um, look, it's, it's, uh, there's a lot of good memories. I have a lot of good friends still. Um, in Robbie and outside of Robbie that are um, that are back home in Galway, whether that be in Galway City or, or um, at home in Portumna. So, uh, or Galway and Connacht will always be special to me. And um, it's it's no different when I come off the pitch. Um, I'll always check out and see how they do, and um, I always I'll try and look at this, try and look at their games as well and see how the lads are doing. And um, I'm on to quite a few of the lads a lot as well. Just seeing how they're getting on and um, how how everything's going. So, yeah, look, um, I have a lot of long-term friends there and uh, long-life friends down the line. And, um, it's great to see them doing well this year and it's great to see that being represented with honours um, with Jack and the likes of and Olton back in this year again and Quinn and obviously Bundy and hopefully Marmo will be back in there as well. So And obviously uh, Tom and Caelan getting an opportunity this year to train with them as well. So, look, that's... That's the reason why um, people marched all the way back in 2003 to get four provinces that are strong and to make sure that Connacht is one of those people or one of those teams that are producing players. And I think that's that's good for Irish rugby. And obviously, um, with stuff in the press this week saying that some players are going to move to other provinces, that's only going to help Irish rugby. And yes, we have uh, massive rivalries and derbies and whatever else, but... Uh, until some players move around and um, make Irish rugby stronger and make even underneath that make club rugby stronger, um, that's going to benefit everyone and it's going to benefit Irish rugby at the end of the day. Is it too early for you to to set kind of coaching ambitions, or are you thinking to yourself, I'd love to get back and, and coach Connacht in the future sometime? Ah, uh, yeah. Look, a lot of things, a lot of things have to happen. Um, like there's absolutely no guarantee that this will succeed. So uh, for me, so it's um, it's very very early doors, and um, it's a huge learning curve. And um, speaking to Pat recently, it's like it's something it's something that I've wanted to do, and um, I'm thoroughly enjoying it. And um, some people might have thought it was a strange decision to to move over here and to to go straight into um, straight into the deep end, but I'm loving it. Um, I think working with um, high quality players and some world class players over here in a very tough competition is only going to make you, you um, better and stronger and yes there's, there may have been an easier path to take and um, do some CPD and do other stuff and take a job in a, in a less um, harder role but um, that, that wasn't for me um, this is what I wanted to do I wanted to be in a professional environment I wanted to test myself and experience um different so if it succeeds then it's it was a great call if it doesn't then um yeah that might be the end of my professional coaching career so yeah look time will tell time will tell and um so far i'm enjoying it and um obviously it, it, it is a steep learning curve over here and um we've made a lot of mistakes in our d this year and that's um that comes with the territory sometimes when you've got new players sitting into a system and trying to change a lot of things and for us we've a lot of players that are playing at the highest level they've ever played in and then we some who are um, world-class players uh, so it's just a matter of getting getting us all on the same hinge sheet and getting us to that point where um, we all know what we're doing and um, we're good at that level so it's yeah it's good yeah absolutely well, well best of luck for the future and, and obviously this season John hope everything goes well for Bristol Bears and, and thanks a million for chatting to us yeah no problem Mark. no problem Very good. We will touch upon the Pro 14 before we wrap, gents. Um, well, all in all, a uh, decent weekend for the Irish province. It's a bit of a tough one for Connacht away at uh, Glasgow. This is last weekend I'm talking about, of course. Um, big win for Ulster, big win for Leinster, and Munster doing well on the road again. I mean, if you were to go back to the end of September, I think Munster have won five of their last 17 road games, but they now have the second-best away record in the entire league, so... Um, 
Johan van Grand's Road Warriors have uh, turned things around on that front. Uh, just looking ahead to the weekend, this coming weekend, um, Leinster face the Cheetahs, who are sixth in Conference A, but still not out of the reckoning by any means. Uh, what is your take on it, Murray? Like, uh, obviously, we would have expected them to do a bit of a number on the Kings. Bit of a slow start last weekend, to be fair, but they just got the job done in the end. Can they? Uh, you presume they'll sort of do similar against the Cheetahs, albeit against tougher opposition. Yeah, you would imagine so. It'll be interesting to see what team is put out again. Obviously, the rest week of the Six Nations across the provinces will be interesting to see who's there um, and who's not. I know Bernard was doing some analysis on the, uh, last night in air on some of the younger guys. Ronan Keller got his debut, was really impressive, and, and Paddy Patterson off the bench as well. So they keep uh, deepening that squad, and, and every time someone's asked to step up, they seem to do something impressive and, and show their qualities and fit in really well to what is an excellent culture you know the, the senior players some of the guys that Bernard's mentioned are really good at facilitating that and that's probably the strength of Leinster that when you're given your opportunity you're coming into a pretty strong team there's not going to be wholesale changes where you're flooding 10 academy guys in you're coming into a team that has good combinations that has someone strong calling the line out that maybe has a Scott Fardy kind of leading things as well so it really does facilitate young players making a big impact I think Leinster's squad the senior kind of squad players who aren't Ireland internationals have been really impressive this season. And again, that will give you confidence that they'll wrap up that home semi-final. Were you concerned at all, Bernard, by how heavily Connacht went down? Like Jack Carty's absence seems to be particularly glaring, as you'd expect, to be fair. Like he's, he's a top calibre player, but it just seems as though they really can't get much going without him. No, he is, he is instrumental. And I think the fact that Joey Carberry now is you know, being diagnosed as being doubtful for the rest of the competition, it'll just be interesting if, if Joe actually risks... Send send them back. I think you know Maybe ordinarily he would go back and play just to get some some game time. But I think probably it's doubtful that that they will now, which will obviously affect uh, affect Connor. But I think listen, they'll they'll bounce back from that performance. Glasgow's a very difficult place to go. They play a real high tempo, um, and if you're not bang on the money you'll, you'll struggle there but going back to the sports ground you know the Ospreys is an interesting one they've been really poor form will they be buoyed now by the by the the fact that it looks like there's going to be a they're going to have a job next year or someone someone will but I do think there's there's still going to be you know those contracts there's 24 players off contract in Ospreys and they're not going to be contracted this week so you know you're still going to have players travelling to Connacht unsure of the future and that's you know that's not a good um, a good place in terms of squad morale in terms of being able to focus on the on the match so I think Connacht will, will will win that game and maybe you know even though Jack will probably miss Jack will be missing um, they'll they'll have to step up they'll be a bounce they'll, they'll bounce back and, and it'll be a reaction. Uh, Monster away at Scarlets. Uh, Monster top of their conference. Scarlets fifth. Um, stick to yourself, Bernard, on that one, given yeah, you've seen plenty of the Scarlets over the yeah, last. Yeah, and Monster. I think Monster just have probably more strength and depth. I think Scarlets, um, you know, obviously producing, contributing quite a few players to to Wales, and um, I think Monster's defence that you know they they ran the Cheetahs ragged, um, but the Cheetahs the Cheetahs away from home. Um, are a different proposition to, to what they are in, in uh, um, at altitude, and uh, I think Cheetahs be very disappointed with the defensive effort. So I don't think Scarlets are are, are, are certainly um, the team they were, particularly without you know the likes of Jonathan Davies and um, you know Ken Owens etc. Who really uh, underpinned their uh, their performances. So I think Munster haven't ha- built up a bit of a record uh, away from home. Haven't been to Wales over the last last month and got two wins. Um, they have enough about them, enough power up front. Um, to to put a squeeze on Scarlet, and I think Munster win that. Yeah, just to touch upon the Carberry thing, Murray, there is some, or there have been some suggestions rather that he could be a doubt for the Edinburgh game in the Champions Cup. Um, in the modern age, I think you always have to kind of like shave off a couple of the weeks that are mentioned in terms of a a length of absence. Um, so I reckon he will be back for that. But say if he was to miss out. What do you want to do at 10 in that game, do you reckon? Obviously, potentially season-defining game in many ways. You've got uh, Tyler Blaindahl, who's playing consistently now again, but has been playing largely at 12. You don't know if he quite will have the rhythm at 10. And then JJ Hanron, who can obviously slot in at 10, but hasn't exactly lit the world on fire this season. Which way would you see them leaning if, mm, that, if worst came to worst? I think like there is going to be hope that Carberry will come back. As you say, you, you, you kind of tend to off a couple of weeks. Um, I think it'll be a fascinating selection call because clearly Tyler Blaindahl is massively rated in the group for reasons we mentioned before is 
his tactical understanding and, and his leadership. He's a um, really important figure in that regard. JJ Hanran has probably had more rugby though, is the thing. And um, they probably have tended to back him as the second choice 10. Tyler Blaindell has played a, a bit of rugby at 12. So I think JJ Hanran would be pretty hopeful of playing in what be a huge game. Obviously, Ian Keatley's gone off um, to, to London Irish now and, and Bill Johnson is getting a little bit of opportunity here and there, but possibly not ready for a game of that that magnitude. Um, so yeah, it would, be, it would be a fascinating selection. Maybe Hanron just pipping it. I think what they've got to do is they've got to make that decision pretty quickly. And so, you know, if 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 they don't think JJ is going to be their guy against Edinburgh, then he's got to put Tyler in 10 mm. and let him play until until then. And if Carberry comes back, then great. But I think chopping and changing, you know, a lot over the next, over the next you know, four or five weeks. Uh, I know it's a down week next week, but just, I think it's really important for their team in terms of setting up their team and giving the man um, most likely to be their confidence is that he gets a lot of game time. You know, JJ is, is very talented. I think what he's struggled with is he's been changed position a lot and he hasn't always got to run a game. So I would say, you know, um, if they think this J, JJ is more is ahead of Tyler as a 10, well, then they got to let him play, you know, up until Joey comes back. And if Joey comes back before Edinburgh, it's a big boost for them. But if not, at least then their backup guy has been has been run the show. Excellent. And finally, uh, Ulster travelled to your old haunt, Bernard, um, over to Rodney Parade. Uh, Ulster third in Conference B, and as you mentioned, like the rebuilding process is very much in full flow at the moment. Um, how do you see that one going? Um, listen, I think you have to back Ulster. I think the Dragons will, bounce, uh, will have a bit of reaction, obviously, which was a heavy defeat in, in Treviso. But, you know, they're they're implicated in this project reset as well. Um, you know, everyone's talking about you know the Ospreys maybe merging with the Blues, um, but there's no regional player in in Wales who hasn't been affected by it. Uh, in terms of there's a new banding system coming in. Um, you know, obviously if the Ospreys had been um, for had have amalgamated with the Blues, there was then going to be you know. 20 players from the Blues, 20 players from the Ospreys on the market. and mm. That would have affected some of the Dragons players. So um, it's been a very difficult time. There's no clarity or real clarity around budgets or coaching, etc. So it's, it's difficult for the Dragons players at the moment. So I, I think that Ulster um, are probably good enough to, to go there and, and um, you know, and win. Munster did it a couple of weeks ago um, in, in terrible conditions. But I think Ulster, are, you know, they've picked up a bit of form. Massive confidence booster, obviously, the way they demolished Zebra. And um, yeah, I think I think dragons will find it difficult. Super stuff, gents. Thanks a million. I suppose we'll have to give Kyle the book, will we? Uh, <laughs> yeah, such a lovely, great, great, great email, yeah. particularly the fig roll analogy. Uh, that is all we've got time for. A reminder that this, this podcast is brought to you um, from brought to you, sorry, by Volkswagen, who I'm sure are largely appalled at what they've heard <laughs> this week. <laughs> we'll uh, bleep them out next week. Uh, listen, enjoy the. Um, Pro 14 rugby over the weekend. We will catch you next Thursday, but until then, take it easy. Yeah.